We're about to say some salty stuff. So say that again, Patty. What did you ask me just now? <laughs> what do you think of the idea that millionaires have earned their millions and thus shouldn't have to share? Um, I mean, I think it's different for, depending on the millionaire. But I mean, I think that actually something that Megan said in the interview I really resonated with me where she's she said that she's learned how to like value the back end work that she's learned how to do. So like the spreadsheets and like the press releases, there's all of this sort of like administrative work that like is invisible in a lot of ways. So it tends not to be paid well. Um, and a lot of times that's the work that women do. Then you have like, you have movie, whole movies about like stockbrokers in the 80s, you know, and how they sort of made their millions by sort of bending or breaking their rules, like basically being like pirates, essentially. And pirates made a lot of money, too, in some cases by sort of like hacking their way through the seas and like that kind of thing. So I'm making some weird parallels here, y'all. I've had a migraine all day. I'm sorry. <laughs> but what I guess I'm saying is, is that. <laughs> there's different ways of looking at earned, you know, because like I'm one of the hardest working people I've ever known. And something I said right before we turned on the recording was, is that I want universal basic income because I really want money, but only so I can give it to other people to do cool stuff. Like I want money so I can pay my rent so I can continue to do cool stuff. <laughs> you know, I want money so that I can buy groceries because like cooking is like meditation and sustenance for me. But like this podcast, right? Like it costs money and I'm trying to raise money and I feel weird about that. But part of it is, is that I want to give that money to our amazing editor producer who's so talented. And I want to give that money to like the musicians that are out of work right now that are, are hustling and, you know, out of their homes to sell recordings of stuff, you know, and I want to give that money to people drawing our logo and, you know, all the cool stuff that there is in the world or could be. All right. But someone rich would say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, you know, and that's a really interesting question. I mean, it's a really interesting question because just like all of us, they, utilize or appreciate or experience like sort of the labor and the work of people who are being unpaid or underpaid. You know, it's just like the conversation about appropriation, right? Like I've been thinking about this a lot. This is a weird tangent, but it's also not as weird as it might sound. But like the fact that there's like a slogan kind of like rotating in my head a lot lately, that's like black culture is American culture. Because if you like, if the things that people outside of America know about America tend to be like our music and our food and like a lot of the things that like you can't strip black contributions out of. Right. But a lot of that was stolen from the artists or in like appropriated and a white artist made money off of it. You know, if you look at any millionaire in this day and age, they, there's a very good chance that they are in the position that they're in because of either structural advantages, loopholes and tax codes, that kind of thing. But I mean, probably in some cases, hard work. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have any money. I don't think it makes any sense to like be sitting on piles of money while the whole world burns, you know, and while people die. I mean, I had a boss once who doesn't have kids and he would like tease me for like being environmentally conscious in the office. And like, I would literally like save stuff to take home and recycle at home. And he would tease me about it. And I'd be like, well, I wouldn't have to do this if you would set up recycling, you know? And he'd be like, well, why do I want to, I want to do that. I don't have kids. I don't care what happens to the earth after I'm gone. And he was all about hustling and making money. And I just think his values were really, really messed up. 
So maybe this is a gross generalization. I think most people who are millionaires in this day and age, most of them, it's not that they haven't necessarily worked, but that they've had a leg up, whether they see it or not, they have advantages that they've received that they didn't necessarily do anything to have those advantages and that they need to reevaluate their goals and their, their values because I don't know what good any of that money is going to do them after they die. Well, even if they do have children, I don't know what good it's going to do them because their children are going to be left, you know, in a country with like crumbling infrastructure on a planet that's on fire, you know, and I think... Well, not their estate. Right, <laughs> their estate the will thing. be pristine. Millionaires... <laughs> Millionaires are assuming they're, they're, they're playing a lottery. They're assuming that they can sort of like save themselves on sort of like their estate can sort of be like so buffered and isolated from the rest of the world that they can save themselves. But as we're kind of seeing with like California wildfires, like where, you know, where, where Sarah is and like here in the South with like the hurricanes and all of the crazy things that are happening weather-wise down here. And as we've all seen with COVID, you know, like I'm a fan of zombie movies. <laughs> and, you know, in uh, Fear of the Walking Dead, there's, I think, I can't remember what season it is, but there's a season in which they basically like live for a period of time in an abandoned mansion, this glorious estate. And I mean, it's great, you know, for them after the zombie apocalypse, because it's kind of isolated and it has a lot of nice things that they can appreciate in relative safety after they've kind of like gone through everything that they've gone through. But where is the owner? Like, (laughs) where's the owner of the estate? Like something happens to the owner. They're not entirely immune to like what happened to the rest of the world, you know? Anyways, that's a long rant. (laughs) All right, so I, I should probably answer my own question, lest I be accused of, you know, wanting the millionaires to hoard their wealth. My answer to the question of, actually, I don't even remember what my original question was, but something along the lines of, should millionaires have their wealth distributed? Did they earn it? Did they earn it? Right, or you know, the fact that they worked for it, presumably and thus should be able to keep it. Well, I think that they are a part of this economic structure. And this economic structure is set up for a few to succeed. So the economy is set up like a pyramid. There's more people at the bottom in the lower wage jobs, the lower paid jobs, the lower educational requirement jobs. And as you move up the pyramid, the number of those jobs or positions or opportunities gets less and less. So at the very top, at around the 1%, there's not a lot of room for lots of people. So if you get there, you got there because you were lucky. Now, yes, you might have worked hard, but lots of people work hard. You know, So if you're there, you're there also because of luck. And because of the system that allowed it. So to me, you you should pay back into the system that allowed you to get there. And part of the system is, I mean, it's a capitalist system. So there is an exploitation of the people at the bottom. So to pay back the people at the bottom, who are you, who you are exploiting to get to the top, to me is only fair. So I'm not a hater, like, 
people on the right say that people that take the positions that I take hate the wealthy. I don't hate the wealthy at all. I have no problems with people being wealthy. I'm more concerned about the people at the bottom and the way they are treated and the things that they need. And how do we pay for the things that they need? Well, we should pay for it with some of the excess that the people at the top have because they're lucky to be there and they, you know, they benefited from the system that also keeps the people at the bottom down at the bottom. So that's my rant. Yeah, I think that's really reasonable. I think it's a very rational argument for why wealth should be redistributed, you know, and, you know, like, I don't, I don't think that like, it's like a moral sin to have wealth or to have achieved wealth. I think all of us, you know, probably have some, some degree or another of desire to have, to have wealth. And, and I, I guess I reverted to wealth rather than money, because I think like the idea of like becoming a millionaire or achieving this sort of like almost impossible to understand or, or level of like financial success, there is like sort of like a longing for stability in that. And and I can totally empathize with why somebody might want to hoard wealth and, and want to believe that that protects them somehow um, or safeguards them somehow from, from the bad things in life. Because, yeah, there's a part of me in my position who is longing for wealth and stability and some sort of safeguard against, against what, what's happening in the world. Maybe if I achieved it, maybe... Maybe I'd be afraid of losing it. Maybe I would be afraid of losing something that's associated with security or protection. So I, I have a lot of empathy for that. But at the same time, part of me is just kind of like, you know, it's just messing up our, our economy, you know, because if you if you park a million dollars somewhere and just let it sit in order for the express purpose of letting it sit and generating more wealth, it's not circulating, you know, it's not buying goods, it's not paying for labor, you know, it's not investing in, in art or infrastructure. And so it stagnates our economy. Yeah. Should we start the episode? <laughs> <laughs> Civics, y'all. A political conversation for all of us. So I've been in the process of listening to the audio of our conversations about checks and balances for what will become episode three. And it occurred to me that it might be good to go ahead and just sit down and do a quick trigger warning. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about trigger warnings. Maybe that's something that we'll have to talk about at a future date, me and Jadi. I don't know how Jadi feels about trigger warnings. Listening to the audio, I needed some time away from it, first of all, before I could sit down and listen to it. And it was really interesting to see how much of the conversation um, I misremembered or even misheard in the moment, just because I was sort of um, increasingly gripped by some remembered trauma that came up. And I can hear it in my voice when I listen to the audio again, which is kind of the hardest part, um, is just how choked up I got and how hard it was to talk. I know that that's a common response for a lot of people to trauma. And so people listening to this episode may hear in my voice something that they, they've experienced or that they've, they understand. And I hope that it doesn't create any trauma for anyone. But I just want to give you guys a heads up that it is coming later in the episode for episode three, where 
um, as we talk about checks and balances, our conversation starts to veer into a conversation about partisanship as represented by the Kavanaugh hearings for uh, his confirmation for the Supreme Court. And for me and a lot of people, I think particularly women, that was a particularly stressful and traumatic set of experiences. It reiterated something, it brought up again something that I had felt during the second um, debate, uh, presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and um, Donald Trump, which itself brought up a lot of stuff that had happened to me over the course of my life. Um, Not a single isolated incident as well will be revealed in a conversation that will probably be in episode four, but um, sort of a series of events and experiences um, over the course of my life. And I I know that a lot of people share that experience. And so I just want to be sensitive to that um, and warn you guys that that is coming. I hope you do decide to engage in the conversation. If you're capable of it, there's a lot currently going on in the world too that may prohibit you from doing that right away. And I urge you to do what's best for you. And this has been a really long-winded trigger warning of sorts, which I don't know how I feel about that about that language. And maybe one day me and Jody will talk about it. But it felt like an important thing to do, just to warn you guys that some stressful, at least for me and maybe for some of you, uh, stuff will be coming up later in these episodes. The Constitution separates the government's power into three branches to prevent one person or group from having too much power. The separation of government into three branches creates a system of checks and balances. This means that each branch can block or threaten to block the actions of other branches. Here are some examples. The Senate, part of the legislative branch, can block a treaty signed by the president, the executive branch. In this example, the legislative branch is checking the executive. The U.S. Supreme Court, the judicial branch, can reject a law passed by Congress, the legislative branch. In this example, the judicial branch is checking the legislative branch. This separation of powers limits the power of the government and prevents the government from violating the rights of the people. So today's episode is about checks and balance. Oh, Maybe our money conversation is related to checks and balances. I don't know. What do you think, Chaddy? I don't, but I always, <laughs> you always find <laughs> some way to loop it all together, tie it all together. So go for it. <laughs> Let's see what you come up with. <laughs> so something really interesting happened where um, we had a technical glitch in the early part of our conversation um, about checks and balances weirdly my microphone went out or I just had some sort of recording problems. I had um, a really old computer. It was an eight-year-old computer that I was really struggling with. It was kind of holding us back for a while there. Um, And I've since gotten a new computer, but, um, but Jody said some really great things. And um, this little first little clip that I want to introduce real quick, he's clearly responding to something brilliant that I must have said about the um, the possibility that perhaps the people can act as a check on the government. And I do remember saying that, and he does, he indicates that I said something along those lines. He said that it was a really good point. I wanted to include, I want to include if possible, what Jody says in the next little segment, because it was really good. raise a good point that 
the people like we always think of checks and balances as the three different branches of government but we don't ever talk about it or think about it as the people are a check on the government in the form of voting in the form of protests you know uh in the form of rebellion so i think that's a a very key concept i'm going to introduce a second clip where my audio was not captured but jody says something really really great about legislative power and um i thought i would just go ahead and record this just in case um so we could somehow work that into the episode well what's interesting is that you know speaking of checks and balances a, a lot of the reason why legislative power rests now in the executive branch a lot of legislative power is delegated to the executive branch is because congress can't act fast enough congress can't move quickly enough and it's in fact designed not to move quickly it's designed to be deliberative it's designed to be slow um so a lot of the powers that in the constitution were granted to the legislature have been delegated to the executive who can move quicker who can move faster to address issues um obviously not fast enough in some cases but they can make policy and and they can act um according to you know what the, the way the winds are blowing so to speak whereas the legislative branch congress cannot take 2 We discovered my audio wasn't recording and so we started fresh. So this is the second version of our conversation after we realized that I my audio was not captured. So today we're talking as you said about checks and balances and you kind of said earlier um when we were talking a little out of order this episode um about how when most people hear the term checks and balances they seem to, to think about the three branches of the government, right? that seems to be the sort of standard definition the basic three branches that you learn in what elementary school or middle school when you take civics for the first time article 1 talks about the legislative branch which is congress article 2 talks about the executive branch which is the president and article 3 talks about the judicial branch which is primarily the supreme court but all the courts that stem from the supreme court essentially that's probably worded incorrectly but you know what i'm saying <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong but like the term like the phrase checks and balances like isn't actually in the constitution right a good question i don't believe that it is the framers definitely intended for there to be checks and balances but i'm not sure they intended it to be the checks and balances that that we have today because for instance or as i talked about in the last episode the judiciary judicial review is not in the constitution so that would suggest that maybe they didn't intend for the supreme court to be a check on congress or the president also they intended that congress was going to be the strongest branch the legislative branch was going to be the strongest branch So we talk about it as three co-equal branches. I'm not sure they thought of it like that. So, you know, there are some differences between then and now, obviously, you know, 200 something years have gone past, so 
Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because, like, I was thinking about that when you talked about how Article 1 is the legislative branch and Article 2 is the executive. So that does kind of seem like they intended for, you know, the legislative branch to be the sort of primary. They mentioned it first. Right. Right. And it wasn't until the early 1910s, I think 1900s, 1910s, that the executive really started to assume power largely through delegation of legislative duties and the supreme court allowed it you know they said as long as congress gives the executive a framework to work in then you know legislative delegation is constitutional hmm. well and you know so this little summary the the, the new citizens test summary for question 14 which is the one about checks and balances the question is what stops one branch of government from becoming too powerful? And there's two possible answers. So I'm focusing on the checks and balances, but the other possible answer is separation of powers. You know, that's another part of this um, is, is that like there's three branches in order to separate power. So the power isn't concentrated in one branch too heavily, which, you know, is sort of like the starting point of checks and balances, but we don't necessarily always talk about that. We talk about checks and balances, but we don't talk about the separation of powers, that there are distinct powers and rights that each of these branches have. And that's on purpose. And that was by design. And then this is the really interesting quote from the summary. It says, this means that each branch can block or threaten to block the actions of the other branches. And I was thinking about that in terms of like things we've talked about before when Obama was president the conservatives in the Senate were, were blocking all of his um, judicial nominations. Well, among other things, they blocked pretty much everything. They tried to block pretty much everything that President Obama tried to do or did do. Um, but he didn't get to name any any judges, did he? Or not any Supreme Court judges? Um, well, we're gonna you're gonna have to fact check me on this, but I think he did. I think didn't he appoint a Sotomayor and didn't he appoint Kagan? Oh shoot, he did. Okay. You know, you can fact check me on this, whoever is out there and going to leave comments and tell me <laughs> what an idiot I am. <laughs> but um, I believe he appointed two. Yeah, he made two appointments, Sotomayor and Kagan. He was supposed to also at least be able to nominate a third, uh, Merrick Garland. I don't know. We talked about this before, but Mitch McConnell, in a way that I think was completely unconstitutional, didn't even allow the president to nominate. So the president is supposed to nominate and then the Senate is supposed to confirm or not confirm. Republicans control the Senate. They could have easily looked at Merrick Garland and said, nah, we're good. And it would have been completely constitutional. I'm not sure why they did what they did in what is to me an unconstitutional way. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But. <laughs> <laughs> what that brings to mind that each branch can block or threaten to block another branch is that the Senate, which is part of another branch, not even the entirety of another branch, but the Senate was continually blocking President Obama while he was in office. And then at the at the end of his second term, he was blocked in, in the way that you just sort of, you know, said that you just sort of ranted about from appointing um, appointing a judge. And the reason I also think about that in terms of more recently, like when I was taking the practice test, the practice um, new citizens test with, I think it was when I took it with Noel, 
it turned out that I don't know a whole lot about the House of Representatives or the judicial branch. Those are like my two weaknesses or two of my weaknesses. And I realized that like we don't hear a lot about the judicial branch. I mean, we hear about like the Supreme Court rulings um, occasionally, but usually just when they're about like abortion or threatened to be about abortion or about something that like in, in an, an election year we might hear about, you know, Supreme Court rulings. But they're really, they seem to be really tied to like what the president is doing or not doing, whether or not we hear about the Supreme Court rulings or, or how they rule seems to be really tied to the executive branch in a surprising way. That was because you're in left-wing bubbles. The right <laughs> wing have valued the Supreme Court and federal judges and all of that for a while and have been working to place conservatives in a lot of those federal positions in those federal appellate positions. So they have been very concerned about constitutional, you know, the judiciary, constitutional decisions, and even federal appellate decisions. Wisely, you know, I've always said that Republicans and the right wing are way better politicians than Democrats and left wingers. And that's one of the things that they were on, like, years ago, maybe 20 years ago, valuing and knowing the importance of the judiciary. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm filled with regret. I mean, that's basically like the length of my um, adult life is it sounds like they've been sort of like plotting, <laughs> to, um, you know, to, to value and take over the judiciary. Um, but part of me is just like, man, where was I? What was I doing while they were taking over the judiciary? Why couldn't I like one woman, you know, force that stopped them. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel a lot of regret about not knowing more about the judicial branch because it, it's a lot, it seems like it's a lot more important or it's become a battleground more recently, you know, because I do remember hearing that like Obama wasn't able to appoint um, Merrick Garland is his name. Um, and that sounds familiar to me, but he wasn't allowed to nominate a judge near the end of his second term. And I remember sort of the broad sweeps of that, but I also like I mean, I got to say, when I think of the judici judiciary branch right now, the two things I think of that come immediately to mind are Ruth Bader Ginsburg, probably because there was a movie about her recently. Um, well, more than one, because there was a documentary as well um, and a lot of books and she's feisty and we're all praying for her to live forever right now. Well, in hindsight, this is a little eerie, but we did record this before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. But then also the other, thing that, <laughs> the other thing that comes to mind is Kavanaugh, because that was a really traumatic period. I guess you call it nomination or appointment hearings. It's confirmation hearings. Confirmation hearings. I mean, the whole thing just kind of seemed like a sham. But I, I just remember how... <sighs> yeah, anyways, I, that's probably a tangent that's not so do, for this, this So podcast. do you think he should not have been nominated or should not have been confirmed? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I, I'm glad that you asked it because it kind of pulls this conversation back on, on course. I think the way that we handle accusations of rape among all other crimes is, is really inappropriate in America. And I don't have all the answers. It's, it's kind of illustrative. It's an illustrative crime in terms of, we're not a country that believes in justice anymore. Our motives are not justice-based, especially not restorative justice. We are punitive. Maybe we always have been, but we at least 
used to pretend that we cared about justice. Um, and the thing is, is that I believe Kavanaugh's accuser, and I'm going to say that I'm going to call her that because I think her name has been sort of, she's been sort of pulled unwillingly into the spotlight and she needs to sort of be allowed to, to not be in the middle of the spotlight. I believe her. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I believe her, but at the same time, I don't necessarily believe that an attack in, in his youth or even a rape in his youth would make him a bad judge. And especially if his record otherwise has proven that he learned something from his crime and anything that came after his crime, or he became a better man, you know, in the intervening years, or he is a good judge. And, and there is some evidence that he has mentored, you know, uh, women and all of that stuff and blah, 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 blah. And whether or not he's appointed as a judge became unfortunately a trial for whether or not he did this thing in his youth because he couldn't be tried for that. Um, and that wasn't the point. I think what the point was for me, and I'm not expressing myself as, as well as I want to be. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm worried I'm coming off as a, a rape apologist, which I'm not. I think what came up in the hearings for me was, is that he did not comport himself in a fair or reasonable way. And I feel like his behavior in the hearings should have barred him from being confirmed because he acted like a man who had been entitled his entire life not to have to think about the consequences of his actions on other people or for himself because there hadn't necessarily been deep or lasting consequences for his behavior. And the fact that every woman in that room, the women that were questioning him, the women that were testifying, had to to do so in an inhuman with an inhuman amount of calm and reserve and sort of like an awareness of like the severity of the circumstances. And he got to rant and wait, rave and make really disparaging remarks as if the people questioning him had no right to do so. And if he was above, the, like he acted like he was above the law. And I found that genuinely worrisome. So for a minute there, I thought we were going to agree and I was like super surprised, so very surprised because <laughs> I thought I was going to have to be the bad guy here and say, <laughs> you know, he did something in, in, in his childhood and it shouldn't be held against him as an adult if there's no evidence that he continued to do this type of thing. You know, all of that that you said is how I feel, but I thought I was going to be the one to say it and I was going to get crucified. <laughs> so I'm glad we agree on that. Um, I do agree with you that he did not comport himself in a judicial, in a manner that we would think of as a Supreme Court justice to, to comport themselves. But I believe he, he was qualified. I believe he is qualified for the position. And I believe that just because I don't agree with the way that he's going to rule a lot of the times should not be a barrier to his appointment and confirmation. I think the president wins the election and the president gets the right to nominate whoever they want, appoint whoever they want. And to me, the decide, what should be the deciding factor is, are they qualified? Not so much what they did in their past as children, unless there is also evidence of that as adults, not so much how you think they're going to rule. 
can I just um, can I'm sorry you know, can from I, the bench can I cut you off for a sec because like I I agree yeah. with you in theory to what you're saying but this this is the problem that I have because he was not a child okay he was a young man he was a teenager he, was a he wasn't a child he was a teenager that's a child but that's not a child I mean that's the reason why the word teenager exists is because there's a distinction between a child and and like a young adult because in the past you know at the age that he was at that was like an adult age in the past right. I'm not saying that something that, that you do when you, I don't know how, well, how old was he? He was like 16, 17 years old or whatever. Yeah, I think he was like 16. Yeah. I'm not saying that something that you do when you're 16 or 17 years old should haunt you for the rest of your life. What I'm saying is, is that, well, there's a lot, there's so much packed into this and this isn't what this episode is about, but he never had to face any consequences for, for what he did. A at the time. And part of the reason why, and this is not necessarily all on him. And I'm, I'm trying to be fair here because of just the way that the world is and our justice system works. Like it's not a system that's built for restorative justice. It's a system that's built for punishment. And it's a system, especially with rape cases or assault cases that penalizes the accusers just as much as it does, you know, those that are accused. And we see that over and over and over and over again. So there were never going to be any consequences for him in the at the moment, at the time when it would have done some good, unfortunately. Because our our justice system just is not set up for justice, is what I'm trying to say, especially when it comes to assault. So are you saying are you saying that because he couldn't face justice in the nineteen eighties or whenever this occurred, that he should face some form of justice now, thirty years later? No. No, I'm not actually, but I'm, I'm putting this in context. So I'm saying, so this thing happened in a time where there was not going to be consequences for him. Right. And then you're wrong about the show that I love has an episode, the Anita Hill episode. And they talk about this, I think a little bit in the Monica Lewinsky episodes as well, but specifically the Anita Hill one, they talk about how Christine Blasey Ford, and I'll say her name now, did not come forward in the way that we talk about coming forward. This is a whole other story. But the thing was, is that she was not asking for justice for what happened to her. She just wanted what happened to her, what he did to her, to be part of the record, to be evaluated as part of his history. I don't think it was necessarily that she was like, he should not be on the court, just if you decide he's on the court, you should know this, right? I think was her motivation for anonymously, privately trying to share this information and trying to get it to the, not into the public, but to the people who were um, adjudicating this. She And then she was called to testify. So that's when it became public because she, like every woman that shares their history of assault, knows that she's going to be vilified for coming forward, right? So it must have deeply concerned her that this thing that he did, you know, might be reflective of his character and also his ability to be a neutral judge for her to have shared the information to be willing to also say it publicly when she knew that there was going to be no justice for her. And she was, I mean, she's had death threats. She had to hire security, you know, in order to testify, it cost her, it cost her deeply to do this testimony. And I think that's the thing that we have to, we have to consider in this conversation. But the point of it was to say, this is illustrative of something that this person has done, something that I know about their character. 
And I'm only bringing it up because they are up for a position that is for life and that is meant to judge cases to be the high, one of the highest judges in our lands in cases where he may not be able to be fair. He may not have a full awareness of situations similar to what, what he committed, if that makes any sense. And I mean, if he had just said, I'm deeply horrified that you know, my actions have hurt somebody so deeply in the past. I, I did not, I did not understand that our inter- interaction was perceived this, the way that she perceived it or whatever he said, or if he just acknowledged it, but then also. My, my understanding is that he doesn't even remember it. So from his perspective, this didn't happen. Ooh, yeah, exactly. So he could have just said that. He could have just said that fairly and allowed her to testify because she was being asked to testify without without haranguing, you know, without his behavior. I think if he had just calmly said what, he, what his side of the story was, what his understanding of what had happened or had not happened, I don't remember it. You know, even if he had said I was I was a heavy drinker in my teens, you know, and acknowledged that I sometimes got blackout drunk and don't remember things. If he had said all that very calmly and he'd shown any sort of regret for like the boy that he had been, even if he did not remember what had happened, like... I think that that would have showed like a lot of like wisdom and calmness. He could have taken the opportunity. He would have been the same person theoretically, you know, that he is now and that he was then, except his behavior would have been different. His behavior would have been, you know, more appropriate. It would have been something that we wouldn't look at and be like, well, that can't man cannot calmly judge. That man should not be, and it, you know, one of the highest adjudicators in the land, you know, so it's not even it's not even that he's going to rule differently than I would want him to rule, although that is frustrating, um, especially because he is someone that's accused of assault and knowing that he's potentially going to be adjudic- adjudicating cases um, that determine laws that sorry, I'm just devolving now. And this is not even the point of this conversation. Well, the, the, and the only reason that I brought up the only reason I brought up the way he was going to rule. Cause obviously that wasn't, that had nothing to do with the accusations, but the reason why his accuser was brought to testify uh, before Congress was because the Democrats did not want him to be on the bench because of his conservative ideas. It always comes back. I mean, ever since uh, I'm not an expert, but, uh, Robert Bork was the first one that I remember them, and this was this was Democrats blocking a judicial nominee, a uh, Supreme Court nominee, because they disagreed with his philosophies, with his ideologies, as opposed to whether or not they were qualified. Um, I rem- actually I remember there was a George Bush, W. Bush nominee, where. Everyone was like, this person, it was a woman, I can't remember her name now, but they were like, this woman is not qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And rightfully, she was not confirmed. You know, that's how the nomination process and confirmation process should go. It shouldn't be, I don't like this person's ideology, let me figure out how I can prevent this person from from being confirmed in any manner any way, shape, or form. 
obviously I'm in the minority in my opinion. <laughs> I think everyone would agree with you. You, you know, let, let's take abortion for instance. If you believe constitutionally that, all right, let's not let's not take let's not take abortion. <laughs> and my audio went out again. Next time in episode four of Civic Shaw, the gloves come off and we finally talk about what we're really talking about. Thanks for listening to Civics, y'all. Please subscribe, rate, and review.